0: Just a brief moment this morning for a commercial message. <laughs> as we do begin the season of Lent together, I want to let you know we've put together a Bible study for the season that will carry us through the scriptures and themes that we'll use in worship on Sundays as well, called The Beginning of the Good News. And this is available in print around, although I know a number of them got snapped up already on Wednesday and this morning. It's also available in a PDF online. If you go to the homepage of our website, at the bottom there's a link for information and resources for Lent. And this uh, PDF is there. So whether you're part of a small group, or whether you're using this for your personal devotion at home, or if you want to be a part of a small group, there are some that are being formed, especially for the season, and you'll see information about those. uh, Or you can check in with Miriam as well. If that title of our series sounds familiar, hopefully it's because you've done your homework. We've been learning together, Mark chapter 1, verse 1. Not only the opening for Mark's gospel, but the theme for our series together. Let's try that again this morning. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Yeah. And so... Each week, we will turn to Mark's gospel and see what the good news is for us. And this morning, we turn to chapter 7, starting in verse 34. Listen to God's word for us today. From there, Jesus set out and went away to the region of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know he was there. Yet he could not escape notice. But a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately heard about him, and she came and bowed down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile of Syrophoenician origin. She begged Jesus to cast the demon out of her daughter. He said to her, Of course, my beloved child. I've come to bring the good news of healing and wholeness to you and your loved ones, Of course I'll heal your daughter. Isn't that what we want Jesus to say? Isn't that what we expect Jesus to say? But no, that's not how this story turns out. Mark, again in verse 27, continues in this way. Jesus said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Sir, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then Jesus said to her, For saying that, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. So she went home, found the child lying on the bed, and the demon gone. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Good and gracious God. May the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts, be pleasing and acceptable to you, O Lord. For you alone are our rock and our redeemer. And let all God's people say, Amen. Amen. If you were here last Sunday or had a chance to catch up with worship online, we read a story from Mark chapter 5 in which Jesus seems to very intentionally go out of his way in order to have a particular encounter. He puts the disciples in the boat. He directs the boat to go to the other side. He puts in the boat on the shore of the other side in the land of the Gerasenes in a place where a man possessed by demons will come running out of the tombs where he lives. And an encounter with Jesus at that moment, an encounter that Jesus seems to have intentionally planned, leads to Jesus, the compassionate healer, liberating this man from his demons. And that's the the kind of Jesus we have come to expect. And yet, everything about today's encounter runs counter to that narrative. Here, Jesus is not trying to run into anybody. (laughs) In fact, we find that he has gone off to Tyre. Mark doesn't tell us explicitly why, but he does tell us that Jesus is trying to be alone. What we sometimes call eye time, or introvert time, perhaps. Maybe we can assume that some combination of physical, emotional, and spiritual exhaustion has led Jesus to this kind of retreat. After all, Jesus has been burning the candle at both ends recently, and maybe he's a little burned out. He's been feeding the multitudes, healing the sick, casting out demons, arguing with the Pharisees, all while putting up with his perpetually perplexed, And yet, not quite getting it disciples. For any number of these understandable reasons, it seems Jesus needs a break. But Jesus doesn't get a break. Instead, he gets another interruption. This time, from an unexpected and uninvited guest. And aren't those always your favorite kind? You're at home, minding your own business, and an unexpected and uninvited guest shows up. This guest, a woman, barges into the house where Jesus is staying, bows down at his feet, and begs him to cast a demon out of her daughter. And this, as I alluded to earlier, is where the story takes a dramatic turn. And if you, too, wonder why Jesus initially responds to the woman in the way that he does, well, you're in good company, (laughs) Uh, because Christians for thousands of years have been trying to figure out why Jesus responds in what seems to be a very unchrist like way. Now, some have suggested over the years that perhaps Jesus is testing her, testing her faith. Maybe it's a kind of rabbinic technique for testing her faith, and that's possible, though to me it seems unlikely, because as we read through the entire Gospel of Mark, We don't see a precedent for this. We don't see any other place where Jesus uses a a kind of technique to test someone's faith. That doesn't seem like that's necessarily what's happening. Jesus may be initially responding to her in a way that seems dismissive and rude, but perhaps he's conveying commonly held perspectives of his culture. His reference to the woman and her daughter as dogs seems harsh to us. And it may be a harsh comment, but the truth is we don't know how these references would have been heard by her or in Jesus' day. Remember, we're reading scripture in a different language from the perspective of a different culture 2,000 years later and half a world away. And so we should always be a little cautious or careful that the assumptions we bring to the text from our perspective aren't necessarily the same kinds of assumptions that were held By those then. And yet, perhaps any number of these reasons, perhaps Jesus' cultural lenses or even his fatigue and dismissiveness, could say something to us about Jesus as both fully human as well as fully divine. That's a mystery that we'll never fully understand because we are only human after all. And so, yes, Jesus is fully divine. We believe that as Christians, but also fully human. And what does that humanness of Jesus look like? Well, the author of Hebrews, later in the New Testament, reminds us that in Jesus we have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses, who in every respect was tested as we are. And maybe some of this emotional space that Jesus is in, some of his lenses are part of that weakness or testing, yet the author of Hebrews goes on to say Jesus was without sin, and that understanding of Jesus' life often provokes us to wonder, well, then could Jesus have been angry or rude? Are those things a sin or not? And those are interesting questions to wrestle with. Your Bible study for this week in our series will invite you to wrestle with some of those questions, Is it a sin to hold perspectives based on cultural norms or assumptions? Is it a sin even when those norms or assumptions become challenged by someone else? If they're broadened, if they're made more inclusive, or as we often say around here at First Press, are more open and welcoming. Well, whatever the reasons for Jesus' initial response, as interesting or even as meaningful as that reasoning may be, I'm going to invite us this morning not to linger there too long because Mark moves us quickly from that moment onto the woman's response and then the final result of her encounter with Jesus. And I want to take that part of the journey with you this morning too. Notice that Mark, who is so often both concise and precise in his writing, in the shortest of the four Gospels, seems to go out of his way in this story to include a few extra details. Jesus, we're told, is in Tyre, which is a region of the Gentiles. And yet Mark goes out of his way to tell us that this woman is a Gentile. He wants to reinforce or double down the reality that she is different than Jesus. And then he goes on to tell us that she is Syrophoenician, which means she's from the town of Phoenicia in the region of Syria. And scholars tell us that may tell us something about Her social class, she may have been an upper class citizen being from that town. It may even tell us something about her ethnic background that might have been different from Jesus as well. That is, there's layers upon layers of difference between her and Jesus. And further highlighting that difference, she comes as an unaccompanied woman in the presence of who we assume is an unaccompanied man. We're not told that Jesus has his disciples with him. And for her, an unaccompanied and uninvited woman to approach a man on his own, that would have broken every social taboo in their culture. And so again and again, Mark is setting the scene in what seems like this dramatic contrast between Jesus and the woman who has come into his presence. And yet, like many of the stories in Mark, This woman who is so far outside of the realm of Jesus seems to understand better who Jesus is and what Jesus is about, even than his own disciples. The outsider seems to get it more than the insider. That's a theme we'll encounter again and again. Because it's not simply that this Gentile Seraphonician woman cleverly reconfigures Jesus' metaphors about crumbs and canines to fit her desires and her daughter's need. She knows something about the abundance of the good news that Jesus brings. Good news given in such abundance that even if it's offered first to the children at the table, some of it will surely spill over the sides of the table and be available to her and her daughter at the edges. It's like the good news of Jesus feeding the thousands. And what happens? There are 12 baskets full left over. A story of abundant good news. It's like Jesus at the wedding feast where he turns water not into just some wine or enough wine, but hundreds of bottles of the finest wine, a story of the abundance of the good news. She understands something profound about extraordinary and extravagant abundance, and we might compare her understanding to that of the disciples, who will find themselves arguing about who shall be the greatest among them. They're arguing out of a scarcity mindset rather than abundance. The scarcity that there's only so much good news to go around, so they better scrap and scrape for their own portion. There certainly couldn't be enough for all of them to have an equal share. And yet, this woman, this woman who comes from the margins, knows something important, something life changing about the abundance of good news. She knows something important about how powerful it is. So powerful that Jesus has come to offer salvation and transformation and renewal. And even just a few crumbs, a a mustard seed size portion of crumbs will be enough for her and her daughter. So she doesn't demand that she be treated like the children. She she says as one of the outsiders, look, Mr. I'm not asking for a seat at the table, it's just that my daughter is suffering and all I need is just a crumb or two to do the job. It's really a brilliant response on her part. Not least of which is because it cuts to the very heart of Jesus' ministry. His taboo-busting, boundary-breaking, division-dismissing ministry of table fellowship. After all, Jesus is the same Christ who eats with tax collectors and sex workers. Jesus is the Christ who breaks bread with sinners. It's at the table and with table fellowship that Jesus most often shows us the true nature and character of God. And so the table is precisely where this woman from the margins, this Gentile, Seraphonician, uninvited, unaccompanied woman from the margin, calls him out as if to say, Lord, where's my good news? Where's my place here? If you are who you say you are, I know that you are not content while anyone goes hungry at the table. Your good news is here. I know it's here. You already have it, and I believe there's enough of it to go around even to me. Expand the circle. Dissolve the boundaries. Widen the table. Preach good news to all. And it's as the result of her words, a result of Jesus' encounter with the woman at the margins, that his response, for whatever reason, changes. Where he had drawn a line before, the line is expanded, or maybe, maybe the line is eliminated entirely. Maybe there are no margins anymore. Some of us this past week had the opportunity to attend a nonprofit fundraiser here in Fort Collins. It was for one of our mission partners, Isaac, that does a lot of wonderful work here with the immigrant community in town. The keynote speaker on Thursday night was Father Gregory Boyle. Some of you will recognize that name. He's written some best-selling books describing his ministry in Southern California. He runs, as a Jesuit priest, the largest gang intervention program in the world, Homeboy Ministries. And some of you know his books, Tattoos on the Heart, or Barking at the Choir. Father Boyle on Thursday night shared some profound words with us, but perhaps none struck me more than this, and maybe because my head had been swimming in the story of the Seraphonician woman all week. Father Boyle said, We are sent to the margins not to make a difference, but so that the folks on the margins will make us different. This year during the season of Lent, we're going to invite all of you to participate together in a project, uh, a kind of prayer project, where each week in worship, I'll give you a prompt of someone or something that you might be praying for or that is on your heart, and then following worship, either out in the narthex behind us or in Fellowship Hall just here to uh, the west there'll be a table out with little slips of paper where you can write a word or a name or a phrase in response to that prompt about what you're praying for in this season. We started this project on Wednesday night talking about what we are afraid of as we lean into the season of Lent. And so we invited people to reflect on some of the fears that they hold even during this time, and they wrote some of them down And those pieces of paper were then transformed into this piece of art sitting here this morning. Each week, a similar uh, sort of pane of stained glass uh, will be created out of your prayers. And they'll be installed here around the church so that as we are on this journey of Lent together, we will increasingly share together these prayers uh, that we not only bring on our own hearts, but we can share with each other in community Uh, We hope this will be a beautiful way that we uh, are able to be honest and vulnerable and uh, bring uh, all that's on our hearts and minds to worship with us this season. And so this morning, I'm going to invite you to consider who is the other? Who is the other in your life for whom you are praying? As we think about this woman being an other kind of person, a foreigner or a stranger, somebody that was other than who Jesus was, and people like Jesus. Who are the others in your life? People that seem a stranger to you. It might be a person who is a member of your own family. For some of us, it might be someone who is a part of a different political party, or a different race. It might be someone from a different community, or a different class, or a different life experience. Who is the other in your life, for whom you want to be in prayer. So we'll invite you after worship to take a moment and to share that, and then those prayers will be with us next week as well. Our reflection this morning reminds me of a story I heard a few years ago at a worship conference where one of the preachers was a man named Reggie Smith. Reggie describes himself as an all-black pastor serving an all-white church in an all Hispanic neighborhood. God has a sense of humor, he says. When Reggie got to the church, he said they began reaching out to the neighborhood and realized that the most important outreach was to the kids initially. They started just providing some rec leagues and some homework help and some other ways of connecting to kids in the neighborhood. Uh, Not unlike what Matthew's house does, our mission partner here in our education building with kids in our own neighborhoods. And over time as they got to know those kids, the kids got to know them. And one of them in particular, a kid named Carlos, was particularly interested in what they were teaching about this person named Jesus. And what this faith was that they described and that motivated them to do their work. Carlos was a whip-smart kid, a a kind of leader among his peers. Um, He was a kid that really stuck out. And so Reggie connected to this kid, and eventually Carlos asked Reggie, could I get baptized? Well, in their tradition... um, The elders on the board are the ones who approve baptisms in their church. And so Reggie went to the next board meeting and described to the elders the situation, their outreach ministry and their connection to this kid, Carlos, in his request that he might be baptized. It was quiet around the table for a moment after Reggie described the situation. Finally, one of the elders said, Well, is Carlos here legally? Reggie said, I I honestly wasn't prepared for that question, and so I just answered it honestly. He said, I I actually don't know uh, what Carlos' status is. One of the the other elders said, well, are we allowed to baptize him if he's here illegally? Reggie said, that meeting got out late that night. (laughs) As they spent a long time together. He spent a long time, he said, trying to understand how we untangle the ways that we tie up politics and social and cultural norms and beliefs into our understandings and expressions of faith. The ways in which we might confuse citizenship in a particular country or membership in a particular tribe or group of insiders versus citizenship in the kingdom of God, the beloved community of Christ. Carlos says, we did baptize, I mean Reggie said, we did baptize Carlos. Though it seems the change in Carlos as a new brother in Christ occurred alongside a more major change in that church. As together we all learned anew something of the abundance and the power of the good news of Jesus Christ to tear down the walls that divide us. Father Boyle reminds us, we are sent to the margins not to make a difference, but so that the folks on the margins will make us different. Friends, here's the good news for all of us this morning. For some of us, too, might feel like we are the ones some days on the margins. And yet, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done or what you've left undone, No matter what labels or limitations have been placed on you by others, the good news of God's love and grace is that it's offered in such abundance and with such power that none of us, none of us, none of us are beyond its reach, beyond its power to transform our lives. All of us. All of us. All of us. For no matter what demons we face within us, or our loved ones, or that we encounter in others along our way, we together stand firm on the hope of the gospel, the good news that Jesus ultimately brings healing and wholeness for us all. Amen.